ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Italy's giant mafia trial held in a converted call centre convicts over 200 people. There weren't any court rooms that could hold not just the defendants, but the lawyers and everyone else involved. So we're talking about, on a normal trial day, we would have about 1,000 people in the courtroom. But will the three-year-long maxi trial lead to lasting change? That's coming up. Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. First to a food fight in the federal court, the big battle of the burger chains. Big Jack, now at Hungry Jack's, bigger, better, flamier. Hungry Jack's has won a legal fight with McDonald's over the use of its Big Jack and Mega Jack trademarks. McDonald's Big Mac is 100% Australian beef. Professor Michael Handler is an expert in trademark law at the University of New South Wales. Michael Handler, this was a tough turf war over trademarks. What was the battle about? It started in about 2020 when Hungry Jacks came up with an idea of calling a larger-than-normal-sized burger Big Jack. And there was evidence that there was a similar-sized burger used elsewhere in the world called Big King, where they trade as Burger King. And the choice was made in Australia to go with a burger called Big Jack. And McDonald's, who make the Big Mac, were pretty unimpressed by this, weren't they? They were, and I think it was perhaps unsurprising. Uh, There was a suggestion that in coming up with the idea of the name Big Jack, the Hungry Jacks knew that it would be perhaps seen as a taunt of of McDonald's, that consumers would perhaps associate it with the, the Big Mac. But the legal fight then was over whether Hungry Jacks had crossed the line and had adopted a deceptively similar trademark to Big Mac, which would make them liable for trademark infringement. So McDonald's was claiming that Hungry Jacks had infringed its trademark in Big Mac and it was deceptively similar and designed to confuse the consumer. So it was, I I think, seeking to remove the Big Jack and Mega Jack trademarks from the trademark register in the edible sandwiches and meat sandwiches category. That's, That's right. Hungry Jacks had, in fact, registered Big Jack and, and Mega Jack as trademarks, but McDonald's primary concern was uh, with that activity being yeah, infringing. And you're right that the, the key test there was whether Big Jack was deceptively similar to Big Mac and also Mega Jack, whether that was deceptively similar to Mega Mac. And the issue that you raised about whether these uh, marks were chosen by Hungry Jacks in a way that was intended to deceive is an issue that's folded into the inquiry about whether the the marks are deceptively similar. So what did the court find? The court found in favour of Hungry Jacks on uh, this particular issue that it found that the trademarks were not deceptively similar to Big Mac or to Mega Mac. There are two parts to it. It's whether it was orally, as in the words sounded the same, and also visually whether the, I don't know, the branding and and the way it looked was also uh, too similar. That's right. The judge very much focusing, as you said, on the visual and, and oral similarities between the, the marks or, or dissimilarities, as the, the judge found. judge found that 
the word big is quite a descriptive element of, of both marks. It just describes the, the, the size of the, the burgers. And then when you're comparing you know, Mac with Jack, the judge thought that there was you know, sufficient visual and, and oral and conceptual differences between them that consumers wouldn't end up confusing the two marks. Yeah, I think he said something like, people like to be attuned to noticing differences in forenames, but Harry is not Barry and Pat is not Matt and Ryan is not Brian. That's right. And it's an interesting outcome because there's there's perhaps not a great deal of, of visual and, and, and oral dissimilarity between the two, but those conceptual differences were, were given quite a bit of a bit of weight. But it was acknowledged that Hungry Jacks was engaging in an exercise in, quote, cheekiness, inviting customers to compare Big Jack and Big Mac. And I think Scott Baird, who was the Hungry Jacks chief marketing manager, in his affidavit said, quote, I was aware that the name would likely be perceived as a deliberate taunt of McDonald's, end of quote. And these kind of taunts are common. So, so it's OK to taunt, right? Yes, that's absolutely right. And I think it's one of the, uh, the the reasons that trademark law can be so fascinating that when you see businesses you know, behaving this way, as you say, with a bit of cheekiness and a little bit of taunting, but in a way that falls short of the core harm that trademark law is designed to protect against, which is consumer confusion. So trademark law isn't a body of law to stop free riding or to stop misappropriation or to stop copying. It's a body of law that's designed to prevent primarily consumer confusion. And so it's okay to engage in this you know, cheekiness, a bit of taunting, even if you know it's intended to result in some associations being drawn with a, with a, a famous mark, as long as it doesn't cross the line into adopting a deceptively similar brand. Tell me about another case, I think it was in the UK, a big battle between, burger battle between McDonald's and um, Burger King, the, the sort of the parent company or the franchisor of, of Hungry Jack's. Oh, there are a couple of interesting ones in, in Europe. One that, that goes back perhaps about a bit more than uh, 30 years ago now when Burger King was trying to get a foothold into the, the market in the UK, it uh, developed a series of advertisements on buses and, and on the tube that had an image of a Whopper next to the, the tagline, it's not just big, comma, Mac. And then some much smaller print explaining that uh, Burger King's product was in fact called the, the Whopper. And interestingly, in that case, the judge thought that Burger King had crossed the line and engaged in, in passing off. So that's an example of perhaps a, a bit of cheekiness or taunting going too far. Another example from just a couple of years ago, and perhaps one that gives a bit of context to this Australian dispute that happened in 2020. In 2019, the European Intellectual Property Office, in a quite surprising ruling, found that McDonald's had not used its trademark Big Mac in the EU in a five-year period and ordered that it be removed from the EU trademark register. And Burger King responded with, again, so I think a, a cheeky practice by changing some of its menus in countries throughout Europe, including Sweden, by adopting products with names like Not a Big Mac or a burger that wishes it was a Big Mac. So it, it felt that it saw a, a bit of an opening in, in European law with the Big Mac mark having been ordered to be removed from the register. Burger King could then come and uh, 
adopt these sort of quite quite cheeky practices. And again, that's that's a nice illustration of perhaps one that involves a bit of free riding, maybe a bit of misappropriation, but conduct that was designed uh, not to confuse consumers and not to cross the, the, the legal line. And they were legally able to do so. So, Michael Handel, what's the takeout from these uh, disputes and these decisions? They're fascinating decisions. And I think a, uh, a key takeaway message is that Australian courts, I think, are very much alive to the distinction between, you know, cheeky, taunting conduct that might involve a bit of free riding on the one hand, but conduct that crosses the line and involves the adoption of deceptively similar brands on on the other. A case like the the, the, the current dispute between McDonald's and Hungry Jack over the you know the Big Mac Big Jack mark is one that I think shows a, a, a real awareness that you know, merely referencing another another brand, perhaps doing so in a cheeky, slightly provocative way, doesn't give rise to legal liability. It's only when you adopt a brand that, that might actually confuse uh, notional consumers that there's going to be liability. Food for thought. UNSW <laughs> Professor Michael Handler, expert in trademark law and co-author of the textbook Australian Trademark Law. Thanks very much for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks, Damien. Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. You can follow us on the ABC Listen app. Last week in Italy, an extraordinary mafia trial reached its climax. Over 200 people linked to the Ndrangheta crime clan were sentenced to a total of 2,200 years in prison. University of Essex criminology professor Anna Sergi is an expert on organised crime in Italy. Anna Sergi... Can you describe the dimensions of this high security trial, which I understand was held in a converted call centre in the town of La Mezzia Terme in Calabria? Yes, there weren't any court rooms that could hold not just the defendants, the defendants don't actually attend court, but their lawyers uh, and everyone else involved. So we're talking about on a normal trial day, we would have about 1,000 people in the courtroom. So obviously you need a lot of space for that. So that space was built purposefully for this trial and eventually, hopefully, will be used for other trials in the future. And I understand the room, or it was described as a bunker, was so vast that there were video screens anchored to the ceiling so participants down the back could view the proceedings, what was happening down the front of the room. Yeah, there were two special things about this room. On the one end, it looks like a bunker, like a warehouse. It's a very flat building, very new building, because you know it's it's purposely built very quickly for this reason. With, as you said, you know, screens uh, from the ceiling at the back of the room, uh, microphones organized in a certain way, so all the things you would imagine. But also, it was prohibited, and this is kind of strange in an Italian trial. It was prohibited for the press to record anything, so the press could enter and they could take notes, but they couldn't record any video. And if they did record any audio, that couldn't be published. So that was quite a big change from the usual procedure. So you had a room with up to a thousand people in it, um, a series of desks. It kind of looks like a giant university exam room in (laughs) in some ways uh, um, with some of the accused, but defence lawyers, prosecutors, court staff and the media um, in this room. 
Yes, but as I said, I mean, eventually not every day you would have 1,000 people and the media uh, interest eventually kind of faded off apart from certain specific days. Uh, it was a very, very long trial uh, and not every day was, you know, there was a buzz. It was a three-year trial, I understand. And can I say it's not over? I know it sounds like it's over, but it's not over. <laughs> it's only the first degree. There are a number of appeal steps that the convicted offenders can... Yes, there are a number of mandatory appeal steps. So we will get more in the next few years. Uh, so we expect this trial to go to split into smaller fragments as it goes uh, up to the Supreme Court, essentially. Okay, so you had a panel of three judges. They took an hour and 40 minutes to read out the sentences against more than 330 um, defendants. Uh, about 200 were found guilty, about 130 were acquitted. Anna Sergi, why have such a huge trial? Why not have separate smaller trials? What's the thinking going on here? Yeah, so it was very tedious to hear the, the judges read it. It was kind of broadcasted on TV. It was the only time that it could be broadcasted. So I must say that I don't particularly endorse the use of maxi trial. I don't think maxi trial are there to deliver justice. Uh, so that said, the argument made by the prosecutorial office to join what essentially were five different investigations that altogether became this trial. The reason for that were twofold. First of all, it was um, essentially a way to uh, deliver for the first time a picture, a photograph of a territory, the province of Vibo Valencia, which has not been considered as a whole when it comes to mafia power. So this trial had this specific objective in mind. We don't want several trials. We want a one trial that, that delivers us the full picture of what is going on in the organized crime scene of this province. This is something that Italian justice has done many other times with specific trials that are meant to become epochal trials, okay? So it's not the first time. But there is another reason, which is a technical reason, and it's that this trial fell into the province of Vibo Valencia. Vibo Valencia is a very, very small province, and there just weren't enough judges should the trial be tried differently. So if we went for, let's say, five different trials, we run the risk of running out of judges. So, you know, this was another reason why eventually they decided to go for one uh, trial only so that they could have one unique bench and eventually judge everyone together. So that was another reason. So a, a practical reason, but also an idea of getting this overall snapshot, this overall helicopter view of yeah. the extent to which the Indrangada controlled or or had um, compromised the society in that region. What did it find? What, what was revealed by this trial? So this trial shows that there was this unique central power pivoting around the Mancuso family and the Mancuso family essentially had allies or enemies and where they had enemies, there were feuds and wars and people dying on both sides and where they, they had allies, essentially they created synergies for various things, including business and um, criminal business and legal business as well. So everything around this family and their let's say, strategic push and pull over the province was essentially the main photograph of the province. But curiously, the main guy that was uh, supposedly on trial, the boss of the Mancuso family, his uh, position has been struck off and sent to another trial because of some procedural 
issues with the judges. So the judges couldn't deliver justice on him because they had already judged him in the past, so they were considered to be biased. So it was a fairly weird situation where all of the family and various other allies and other people around him were all on trial, but not him. So that, I think, is, again, another peculiarity of this trial. You're talking there about Luigi Mancuso. Uh, really interesting. So so there was a, this sort of snapshot created that the, the charges were things like uh, murder, arms trafficking, extortion, loan sharking, drug trafficking, money laundering, a huge range. And, and I understand that, uh, you know, some of the major crime figures in the trial they had nicknames like the Wolf, Fatty, Sweetie, and and yep. and some were politicians, some were senior police officers, lawyers. Yeah. So the the rot or the cancer had spread up and down the society, and everybody was exposed to, to the power of, of this clan. Yes, but there is a but. <laughs> there is a but. Every 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 mafia trial in Italy for the past forty years has this. There is no mafia trial that doesn't include um, white collars of whichever sort. So in this sense, this trial is not special. What is uh, actually, when we go and look who was uh, who was convicted, we start seeing some of the problems of this trial because among the people who were convicted, we have a former senator and a lawyer, someone who has been, who was the lawyer of Luigi Mancuso. So, so this person, you know, has been in the public eye for quite a while. But we also see some very problematic, uh, legally problematic acquittals. So people who, you know, were not convicted. Uh, and it's not quite clear why one was convicted and the others weren't. So we need to wait for the motivation. With uh, people from the, um, you know, from the institution, including secret services, like in this case, uh, one person was uh, part of the secret services and got uh, convicted in the first degree. It is very difficult for these um, sentences to stand beyond the first degree. So it's a commonality of all these mafia trials to have this schizophrenia uh, where we can't really uh, convict that many uh, white-collar criminals or people who in the professions or in politics who side or associate or somehow support mafias. And even more so, when it gets to the appeal, a lot of their position get quashed. Everyone is expecting some sort of change at uh, appeal level. So, again, difficult to read. So about two-thirds of the accused, about 200 people, were found guilty and about one-third, about 130, were acquitted. And you're saying that a lot of those convictions might be overturned on appeal because the evidence might not be ultimately found to be sufficiently solid. You say the trial revealed a lot about money laundering, how profits from the drug industry are channeled or recycled into legitimate businesses. Yes. Yes. So uh, in a way, this trial is very classic. There is no, you know, new way of laundering money. There is nothing that really stands out in that sense. It shows the resilience of the old ways, uh, which is really where mafia excel in a way, and especially the Ndrangheta. So a lot of these, of the people who are, who have been convicted um, are 
low-level, let's say, offenders, uh, the people who are mid-level offenders who got convicted and probably where we might see some, uh, you know, overturning in the appeal, where people who arranged uh, some of the laundering or rich handling, as they call them, of the cash. So we see quite a lot of investments going from south to north of the country, which is, again, a very classic in the city of Rome, where the Mancuso clan has been... um, specifically investing for decades now, and we already knew that. So some of the connivance with uh, other criminal groups as well, uh, and specifically for things like investment in uh, petrol stations to get some cheaper petrol from Kazakhstan, for example. So we see a lot of different, you know, creativity on the one end, but also a lot of very small scale cash intensive businesses, which is what, you know, the Ndrangheta is very well known for. Now, coming back to Luigi Mancuso, I understand that a lot of the evidence in this trial came from a group of people called the Pentiti, the children of the gangsters and the crime figures. Tell me about those people. Yes, this trial has a lot of defendants and a lot of uh, collaborators of justice, which is the official name of the so-called Pentiti. Pentito means repentant, but not all of these people are actually repentant. They are maybe just calculating their luck. Uh, Not all of them are children of the defendants. Some of them are very old people who, for various reasons, have decided to collaborate. But in particular, I think you are referring to one of the nephews of uh, Luigi Mancuso, Emanuele, who is the first collaborator of justice of the family. He started collaborating just above 35 years of age, which is fairly young. He was already quite advanced in the mafia career and he's been fairly shattering for the family that someone, you know, so internal to the family has started to talk. The reason why he started to talk is apparently to to secure um, the life of his daughter. And, you know, there are personal reasons there. There are various things uh, to say there. But essentially, yes, he is one of the reasons why this trial was possible in the first place. Together with him, there are many others, in particular another one who is central to this trial is Andrea Mantella. Andrea Mantella was a killer, was a a very high-level drangetista who had started as a killer and then he had become kind of a head of a clan and he was heading uh, some of the conflicts that had, you know, destroyed the province in the process of uh, Luigi Mancuso's quest for power. Andrea Mantella is accusing quite a lot of people, and uh, including the white collars and including the lawyers. So his testimony is, again, very central to the trial. And he's also, again, fairly young, let's say, let's say that. I understand there were about six or seven people who gave evidence against their parents or family members. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. They are uh, all intertwined into this. So there are also some who are not, who are just, you know, lower level. But I think there is a tendency for anti-mafia trials to trust more, obviously, when it comes from within the family for obvious reasons. Anna Sergei, what do you think? Will this trial be a game changer? Will this make a significant dent in the power of the Indrangheta in this region? Depends what kind of power you're talking about. If we're talking about the way the Ndrangheta is felt in the region, this trial has already uh, made some change since the very beginning when the um, arrests were announced just before Christmas 
us in 2019, uh, there was a massive um, demonstration in the street with people, you know, um, marching um, in some sort of solidarity with law enforcement, solidarity with the prosecutors, and in some sort of a, you know, an agreement that the time was up. Time was up. Now this is the time to fight this. Uh, obviously, things change. There was the pandemic in the middle, and a lot of things went, you know, a bit in a different way. Uh, but definitely there has been an increased awareness in the province that mafia power is not just real, that is sophisticated, uh, while instead, you know, before we thought it was kind of like a second-rate mafia in the province. Whether or not this means less power for the clans specifically, probably for some clans, yes, but these are the clans who are kind of, kind of new clans, uh, who were struggling already, who were trying to fight already the quest for power of, of Luigi Mancuso. So smaller clans probably will be out of the way. But the big clans, including the Mancusos, they are, unfortunately, it's not enough to have this type of trials, especially because, and this is the problem of all mafia trials in Italy, when justice arrives and does this you know, sweeping of, you know, of, of territories and uh, sentences and verdicts are passed, a few years down the line, nothing changes because there is nothing that follows justice. It's just, you know, you burn everything down and then what? You know, it's the real roots of the problem are still there. And that's a, a huge question and I guess I'd like a short answer to it and I don't know if it's possible, but what are those, what are those issues which, which mean that it has, its power will be enduring? Well, I, I'm a sociologist, I'm a criminologist, so for me, social drives are really important here. But I'll, I'll answer with an example. So one of the, together with this trial, at the same time of this trial, um, before arrests were made in 2019, the municipality of Limbadi, which is the small town from where the Mancuso family is from, was dissolved for mafia association. So essentially the Minister of Interior found that there had been some interest of the Mancuso family in the management of the local council. Okay. So Everyone was shocked, me included, because I know I knew the mayor, I know the people, it's my father's village, by the way, so I very much know the place. And because this mayor was very much an anti-mafia mayor, very vocal about it and, uh, you know, essentially had spent out of his life, calling them out, calling the mafiosi out. So when this municipality was uh, dissolved, no one could believe it. And people started wondering, it's like, okay, how this is even happening? And then you read in the files that Luigi Mancuso himself, talking to his lawyer, is actually very happy that the ministry has dissolved the municipality because he hates the mayor. So basically confirming that he had nothing to do with this alleged influence over the local municipality, the boss that apparently rules everything, and we know he does, admits on tape that he has nothing to do with it. But the municipality gets dissolved for various reasons, uh, and eventually people looking from the outside, what do they see? They see the state that arrests the mafia clans and a bunch of other people in the village, but they also see the state that arrests the mayor whom they thought was an anti-mafia mayor. So the state appears very schizophrenic. You don't know who to trust. Who are we trusting here? Are we trusting? What's this state doing? They arrest the, some of the people that we know are culpable, 
people that we know they are not culpable and a lot of other people in between, quite a wide net. So if you put yourself in the in the clothes of these people, the state has many, many faces and most of them are punitive. Mafias instead have one face and only one. And this face can always be trusted by the people. So I hope I made some sense. Eventually, now the situation is is what it is. You know, it's uh, people tend to be alienated by these big mafia trials in very small places. It's really difficult to communicate what the reality of the situation is. University of Essex criminology professor Anna Sergi, an expert in the mafia. Thank you, Grazie, for talking to the Law Report. Thank you. That's all we have time for on The Law Report. A big thanks to producer Christina Kukolia and to sound engineer Brendan O'Neill. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.